0: Hello and welcome to the Chit Chat. I'm Rebecca Rison here with Jeremy Roberts, and today we have two great guests on our show Dr. Neil Hutchins and Dr. Phyllis George. Let me tell you about our guests. Dr. Neil Hutchins serves as professor and chair in the University of Mississippi School of Education's Department of Higher Education. Hutchins earned his PhD from the University of Maryland and his JD from the University of Alabama School of Law, where he graduated summa cum laude and was a member of the Order of the Coif and of the Alabama Law Review. His research focuses on legal issues in higher education, with a key strand of the scholarship centered on free speech and academic freedom. Hutchins was the 2015 recipient of the William A. Kaplan Award from the Center for Excellence in Higher Education Law and Policy at Stetson University College of Law. Hutchins is on the author team along with William A. Kaplan, Barbara A. Lee, and Jacob H. Brooksby for the sixth edition of The Law of Higher Education, The Leading Treatise on Higher Education Law is a past member of the editorial board for the Review of Higher Education and a current member for Education Law and Policy Review and is a member of the Authors Committee for West Education Law Reporter. He also serves on the litigation committee for the American Association of University Professors and is a past board member of the Education Law Association. Dr. Phyllis George is a higher education scholar practitioner with a background in academic and student affairs administration. She conducts focused research on social justice and policy issues related to access, affordability, and accountability in higher education. She also teaches a variety of courses within each of the higher education degree programs, including college teaching, organization and governance, recent developments in educational practice, and advanced education policy analysis. So welcome to the show, good to have you both on here. Thank you for joining us on the Chit Chat. Thank you. Excited to be here.
1: Yes, thank you. I'm excited to be here as well.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you for joining us.
2: Yeah, and one question we'd like to start with is getting to know you a little bit better. So did y'all know that you always wanted to work in higher education, or did you have a different career path planned out while you were in college? So could you tell us a little bit about how your career developed?
3: Hmm... <laughs> you want me to go back to young Phyllis? Um, I'm thinking of young Sheldon. Um, I I attended the University of Wisconsin Madison as an undergrad, and um, unfortunately, like then, like now, and then, there weren't a lot of underrepresented minorities, and so I wound up in this honors dorm where I was literally the only African American girl Mm
0: -hmm. or
3: student. And uh, that presented some new and interesting challenges as well as opportunities. And one of the opportunities was I was introduced to um, Residence Life's uh, diversity programming. Mm -hmm. And so long story short, that was my first intro to higher education. I became a member of the diversity programming staff. We were called Multicultural Resident Consultants and we were situated strategically across campus in res life housing, and um, we served as a resource for students of color inside of the dorms Mm -hmm. because many of them had my experiences and we just kind of wanted to create community. And I loved it, so I never left higher ed. That That was literally my introduction.
1: You know, Jeremy, I, that's a, I, I'm chuckling because for me, that's an interesting question. And in some ways, it's ironic that I've ended up as a professor and a chair of, of a department of higher education. Um, I, I actually, as an undergraduate, I was a history major, um, mm-hmm. was involved heavily with student journalism. I thought that I was probably going to go in, into some kind of a journalism or writing career. Um, but I ended up getting um, a certification to teach and taught ninth grade. So I went my entire undergraduate experience, I wasn't aware of kinds of programs that you could get master's or doctorates in to study higher education or student affairs. I went into law school thinking that I was actually probably going to go back into the second, you know, K through 12 arena um, to teach and then probably maybe one day to go into some kind of administrative or policy position. Uh, But what happened in law school is uh, a couple of things. If any course had education of the title, I would take it. So I, I took some K-12 focused courses, but I took a course it was higher education law. It's like, oh, that's got education in the title. So I took that when I was in my second year of law school and within about 10 minutes I was hooked. It was the most interesting course I'd ever taken. I had a great professor who was also in the general counsel's office at the University of, of Alabama. And furthermore in law school, I discovered that you could take, you could take some courses outside of the school of law. And so I was, I was like, Oh, higher education law, this is so interesting. And so when I, it was, wasn't until I was in law school after I'd had my undergraduate and I'd earned a master's degree that I even learned that programs exist where you can focus on the graduate study of higher education or student affairs. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that was really, um, Again, when I was in law school at the University of Alabama in their program, I took an Oregon admin class and a history of higher ed class. And so that really propelled me into a journey of being very interested in higher education and more specifically in legal issues in higher education and policy issues in higher education. And that's what propelled me to pursue graduate study and earn a PhD um, and really considered kind of staying more that law policy route or... or Uh, faculty member route, but ultimately for me decided that I was interested in pursuing in faculty related to interest in research, and also really just enjoy working with students. I enjoy being in the classroom, and I enjoy working with students on writing for dissertations and, and other kinds of projects.
2: Okay, and speaking of the higher education program, to let others know about our program here at the University of Mississippi, could you talk about the different areas that we have. So if somebody is interested or maybe doesn't know that we have a master's program or an EDD or a PhD, could you give some insight as to what y'all do in Guyton Hall on campus?
3: A lot, we do a lot.
0: (laughs) A lot.
1: (laughs) Um, How about Neil,
3: I take the master's and you take the doc programs?
1: Sounds great.
3: Okay, Okay. so we have, we do have two uh, master's program programs. One is an online program. We actually just retooled it and um, are enrolling our first class for the newly um, retooled or minted Uh, master's online and that program allows us to reach students really from from all over the world Mm -hmm. Um, our residential master's program is also very versatile in terms of the students that we draw Um, we draw students from all over the nation and they come and we have a really good relationship with the Division of Student Affairs. And so many of our students are able to get assistantships to support them, but also to provide them with meaningful practice-based experience to complement what they're learning in the classroom. And so we've done a lot of intentional redesign around our MA programming uh, in recent years, and we're really proud of it and and really thankful for the students that uh, are part of our, our learning community.
1: And, and then on the the, the the doctorate side, we have um, a couple of different pr- programs. And, and Jeremy and Rebecca, also I'll step back to say what's really interesting, and it was an intriguing part for me for wanting to join the institution, we're actually a standalone department of higher education. A lot of higher ed programs, student affairs programs, which is fine. They're they're part of larger academic units since we actually tend to, sometimes I'll remind people um we, we rely on a lot of our affiliate faculty and then we have other faculty. And, and part of that is because we actually have very good enrollments across our program, so much so that we were created as our own academic department several years ago. And so on the doctorate side, we have um, always had trad- a traditional PhD program, which that's often like many programs in higher education, student affairs, it's people who may be working full-time, uh, but uh, we also have full-time students. And that's a program that we continue to be excited about. Actually, something that we just added through here, working with the ISIM Center here on campus for gender and women's studies. We'll be rolling out this year that people are able to do an emphasis uh, for the, in the PhD in gender and women's studies. So that's an exciting way to show how our program has really grown, including for PhD level work. Mm-hmm. For our EDD, that is a program that is designed for working professionals. It's a three-year program. Something that we're excited about is that pending final approval from the governing board for the state of Mississippi, we'll be turning that into a completely online program. So we certainly want to serve individuals who are here at the University of Mississippi and in the state of Mississippi, but we also think that will allow us to serve a broader audience. Um, So we're excited in what we're, we're doing in the online realms as well. And then I think to describe our department, something that's exciting, I often say that we're small but mighty. Mm -hmm. and uh, i really think that's true if you look at the quality of our core or central faculty members we have individuals like who we have here today phyllis george who's an exceptional scholar she's also very good with students i think something we pride ourselves on as a faculty is in addition to strength of scholarship we really are interested in students
0: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: we also have other faculty members we added Dr. Frank Fernandez this past year, who were able to snatch away from the University of Houston, who has a background with a PhD at Penn State, also a master's degree at Stanford University. So really good scholar. We have Dr. George McClellan, who is the most recent uh, co-winner of the uh, CU Award, Mm -hmm. um, which is one of the highest uh, honors that you can receive for student affairs scholarship. And he literally writes the book um, that's used often in student affairs classes. Will, um, an area of strength that we have that I think is pretty much unrivaled by any program in the country relates to law and policy issues in higher education. We have Dr. Carrie bryan Malier who focuses on law and policy issues. Dr. McClellan has an interest. We also have an incoming faculty member, Dr. Macy Edmondson, who has a law degree and PhD, who we were able to lure away from the University of Mississippi Law School. Um, and I also have law and policy as an area that, that I write in. So in addition to student affairs, issues. We have a very strong law and policy background. And again, I think in law, we rival anywhere in the country. I also think something that's special about our department. Um, in addition, we have individuals such as Dr. Amy Wells Dolan, who's a very good historian of higher education. We have Dr. Whitney Webb, and we have a lot of really great affiliate faculty members on campus who are working in full-time positions um, that, that, that do a lot of great work for us. So I would describe us as a program that we have our core faculty, our central faculty, but we also have people throughout campus. I'm thinking of Dr. Patrick Perry, who's in student affairs,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, Dr. Rebecca Ryson, we are also technically the academic home for some of the larger undergraduate courses on campus. And we're really fortunate to be able to collaborate, work with people like like Rebecca, Dr. Mm-hmm. Ryson on the classes that we teach. So. I think we're kind of under the radar. We've experienced a lot of growth within the past six to seven years, and it some kind of surprises people when they, they know about that growth.
2: Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a big, big program, big part of higher education with what y'all are doing, especially with our EDHE classes. So we do appreciate y'all for helping us with those and working with our students to get them what we say back on track, especially the ones that are on probation because we want to see them all succeed here at Ole Miss.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, talking about things like students and student success and Jeremy and I work in the Center for Student Success, as you know, first year experience. Um, and we often look at, or we try to figure out when students come to see us, what are those factors that are keeping mm-hmm. them from being academically successful? So in your experience, um, and I know we have a, you know, great retention rate, um, first year, and graduation rate uh, here at the University of Mississippi. But in terms of the national level, you know, I don't think there's any university that has 100% graduation or retention, because sometimes those life factors will come into play. Um, but in terms of the, you know, dropout rates that you see kind of national level, um, what do you think are some factors that may contribute to students dropping out of college, and, and how can universities help students like or in that kind of situation?
3: You know, unfortunately, I think there are a variety of reasons that the research has pointed to, um, starting with some of the more research, recent research coming uh, from, I'm thinking of um, related to student hunger, Mm -hmm. um, Sarah Goldrick-Rab, and really talking for the first time about um, how students are going without the adequate resources that are needed to just be able to focus on their studies. So things like having um, food, having uh, proper housing, having enough funds to support themselves. Many students take on numerous jobs to support themselves, which, as we know, takes away from their ability to focus Mm -hmm. on their studies. Many students are first-generation scholars um, and not necessarily being familiar with the pathways toward completion uh, presents unique and obvious challenges that I think every college and university in America and globally is working hard to address, but um, it's just something that unfortunately we still are having to deal with. And in the midst of this pandemic, my fear is that those challenges will become exacerbated as as students search for funds to support themselves. And of course, during an economic downturn, you know, funds are scarce, jobs are even more scarce. And so that's something that um, as of late, I actually have been processing out loud, particularly for our uh, minority students, wondering how we can continue to address issues of access and equity in higher education moving forward. I think another critical area in terms of preparing students for 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 studies at the collegiate level um, is alignment between K through 12 or post-secondary and secondary education communities. I don't see enough of that. We do have some research that focuses on um, Alignment between state departments of education and uh, state boards of higher education, but more needs to be done on that front, particularly in the way of curricular alignment, so that the um, The secondary curriculum that students are taking is preparing them meaningfully to pursue their post secondary um, goals. I I don't want to Speak too much more on that, but, but that is something that I'm beginning to see in terms of the research horizon that, that we probably want to focus more so on, um, especially as we make our way through COVID.
1: Mm -hmm. Sure. So, as always, uh, very poignant thoughts, um, from, from Dr. George, I would add, and, and, one thing i do is I, w- I would give a shout out, I mean, I, I think one of the, the privileges of our department working in the department is uh, we do have a relationship with many in student affairs. And I think what the, the work that, that you all do for students who are at risk or who are on academic probation, also I'm thinking of the, the courses such as EDHE 105 with Rachel Durham, get to work with Tony Avant and Career Services. So I think that those are very important courses in, in helping students. I think in some ways, those are the kinds of services that we, we need even more of an investment of at this institution and in other institutions, because it's so important, the, the role that we can play, for instance, Dr. George was talking about first-generation students and helping them navigate various pathways. So I think, I think having those resources um, are incredibly important in those support kinds of classes. I think in our institutions, thinking about what we're providing in the way of academic advising is really important. As Dr. George is saying, and the the basic research that we have, or the the very good research that we have on the basic needs of students, including food insecurity, housing insecurity, during the pandemic, we know that not everyone has the same kind of access to internet, and that certainly makes a difference. So I would add it to a couple of thoughts. That, you know, I think she did a great job of providing an overview. So I think one is that even though a lot of students are able to go to institutions still and have moderate amounts of debt in general as higher education as we have become more and more reliant on tuition as states have pulled back from their support it used to be that if you went to the state school or a college or university for a semester or a year and things didn't go as well academically that was not necessarily good uh, but your bounce back maybe didn't involve having 20 or 30 thousand dollars in debt and mm-hmm. so now the debt that students can have, especially if they don't succeed, not just retained, but through graduation, I think can be challenging. I think there are certain kinds of institutions that present special challenges and I'll call out for-profit institutions, for instance. I think that that's uh, very troubling that we know that even though they enroll a certain percentage of students, that is certainly in no way a majority that often those students uh, rack up a lot of debt are the ones um, that have trouble um, in, in repaying those debts. Also, and I'll, I'll put out here from the law side, debt that you accrue for student loan debt is one of the hardest to discharge in bankruptcy. So say if someone accrues student loan debt and things don't go well academically, then they can be saddled with that debt for their life. And so as we've shifted higher education to a private instead of a public good, I think that that's, that's a challenge. What we we saddle uh, students. So if we're welcoming students, especially first generation students, students who don't have the same kind of economic means as other students, then we really need to think carefully about how we create the economic framework where they can obtain academic success, uh, but do so in a way that, that is financially feasible. I think the recent protesting and activism that we've seen around Black Lives Matter I think is a direct challenge that for institutions, especially for our students who are Black, who are Latino, who are Asian, who don't come from white communities, that our institutions have an awful lot of work to do to make those welcoming places. So our students who come to campus who are not white, are going to face challenges. They're going to face discrimination. It can be of the systemic kind. It can be of the direct kind. So at our own institutions, we've had struggles over. We still have monuments to the confederacy and white supremacy that we are just now thinking to relocate and even maybe instead of just kind of really pushing far off to the side still may have a very high profile place on campus Mm -hmm. so that symbolism indicates the deep work that we have to do as institutions to undo a lot of the structures and ways that we operate that really disadvantage students um, and are not that are not fair and uh, can be discriminatory and racist even if not intentional Um, that's certainly the ways that they can operate. So I think right now with a lot of the the activism and the passion and the leadership that we're seeing in in places around the country in the streets, but also certainly coming from a lot of students at colleges around the country, they really are giving us a serious challenge at institutions to really reflect on how we operate and what does it mean to be truly student-centered for all of our students.
2: And when we talk about struggle, especially academically, we see students when they're kind of at their lowest. So if you could think back to whenever you were in school or whenever you've worked with some students, what advice would you give to them, basically not waiting to the last minute or not waiting until it's too late, what advice would you give to somebody who is struggling while they're in school. I mean, it could be struggling with anything because we've seen it across the board with all that we have, but they don't seem to come to us until it's the academic struggle. And then we've got to go back and figure out what happened to all of that.
3: You know, a number of ideas come to mind, but I remember working with, um, merit scholars at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And and these are students who, many of whom were scoring perfect scores on their standardized entry exams. And yet were still experiencing problems, uh, particularly in the STEM disciplines, mm-hmm. um, once they matriculated. And it wasn't that they weren't capable. Oftentimes it was because um, they weren't doing things like Managing their time properly, which sounds so simple. But as I always say, simplicity can sometimes be profundity. And in in that instance, it was very profound in terms of the difference that it made once we sat down and just helped them put together a very structured class, study, work, and play schedule.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, another uh, bit of advice that I, that I often found helpful was to encourage students to visit office hours.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Office hours are some of the loneliest hours on campus. These days, because of COVID, they're virtual office hours, but still, uh, they can be very helpful in terms of allowing the student to a develop a, a relationship with the faculty member so that they can feel comfortable asking questions, but b just creating opportunities to to ask questions that they might not have otherwise thought during the lecture or during the actual seminar, however the class is structured and it 's those moments that lead to deeper learning deeper learning um, and so Students were always somewhat hesitant to visit office hours. I don't know why. I think we faculty are very, very welcoming and approachable people, but it takes two to dance. And so um, I would encourage students not to be afraid to, to frequent office hours. And then also seek out your advisor. I can remember this is more anecdotal than anything, but I did not visit my major advisor until junior year. But they also had everything um, pretty scripted so that you can just access it online and you could could select your courses accordingly and still be uh, working toward a timely completion. But I would not encourage you to do that (laughs) if you're listening. I would not encourage you to wait until your junior year from day one. I would seek out all of the resources that are available to me on campus and uh, utilize them to the fullest extent. That's why they're there. And what, what I have found is that students just don't do that. Right. They don't. And this is, this is sort of one of the great tragedies of the student experience is underly, underutilized resources. Um, there are other things that come to mind, but, but right now, the, those three stand out.
1: You know, I, Jeremy, I think that's a, a really wonderful, important question to ponder. I think sometimes in our society, we stigmatize too much the idea of people seeking assistance or asking for help. It's it's somehow viewed as some kind of a failing if you just can't do everything on your own. Right. Um, you know, but but also going back to some of our earlier discussion about some of the the aids and helps that we may have that certain students may bring to campus and I'll, I'll, I'll bring a law school example in. Mm-hmm. So when I was in law school, I was amazed in the first semester, there were all these people who had been part of various Greek organizations and other things on campus. They all had past outlines and tests of the support networks that they were tapping into. Mm-hmm. And so I think sometimes people may not realize that people who may have certain kinds of capital or other kinds of things, they really are tapping into a lot of assistance as well. And whoever you are on campus, I don't think in any shape, form, or fashion, it's a kind of form of failing or weakness to go and take advantages of those resources. I I think what you will encounter is you will encounter academic advisors, people in student affairs and faculty members who... Uh, librarians i think what we do is like we're always really impressed by the people who take that initiative mm-hmm. and so i think what my message would be is no one's going to see you walking into that office is somehow that there's some kind of personal failure or or something that's lacking they're just going to be really impressed that someone is that invested and interested in their education and in themselves that they've taken the initiative And so what I would also say is if you have one bad encounter, which could come with a professor, I like professors, but professors can do boneheaded things. Please don't (laughs) let that one bad encounter um, make it where you then are shy or reluctant to try again, because I think that you can establish really helpful relationships with people around campus who we more than anything, we really want students to succeed and to thrive. And, and, and so, and again, it's not any kind of a failing or a weakness. I view that as a, tr- someone who has a tremendous amount of strength who they're taking initiative and taking charge to say, I want to make these resources that are out there available to me to do the best that I can. Yeah,
0: that makes sense. And I think those are such good points. And I know our probation students especially feel like there's a stigma around being on probation, right. you know, because they, already probably felt hesitant to reach out. And then now that they're on probation, it's like, they feel like they're maybe scrutinized by everyone, even though we're not scrutinizing them probably as a university other than, okay, how can we help with their GPAs? Um, but also kind of something I wanted to to touch base with y'all about too, is this being such a family component, you know, and of course, families can look different They're I don't want to assume each family has X number of siblings or X number of parents or, but, But whenever students get in trouble, the family comes in to play, you know, and they experience a lot of stress based on their child's academic performance. Um, And so Jeremy and I will a lot of the time have parent phone calls for like, hey, could you help with so and so, you know, could you help my child? And a lot of the times we'll reach out and a lot of the times students will respond, but sometimes they don't. And we keep reaching out going, hey, we're warm and fuzzy, please, you know, just follow up with us, we wanna help you. But for parents who may be concerned about their their, uh, child's performance in college, do you have any tips for them? Things that you'd kind of recommend that they would think about or do? I would
3: say, you know, the same, resources that your child has access to, um, you can certainly be knowledgeable of and be ready to, to encourage your child to, to seek out those resources when they come to you with these harder discussions about challenges that they may be having or adjustments that they're having to make. For many students, um, the, the transition to college is an interesting one. Many of many students are really, really, really bright and they've learned how to work the system. So when they make it to college, it's it's a new system that they're learning to navigate and um, they're learning that they have to put forth a little more effort. And it's not that they can't excel and thrive, it's just, it's a transition for them. Mm-hmm. And I think as a parent recognizing that it's a transition period and that this too shall pass, but it, that they, you, they don't have to go at it alone. Parents don't have to go at it alone. There is just, there are so many resources on any campus, but especially on our campus. Um, the other thing that I would say is College is an opportunity for students to just sort of learn and develop a sense of agency. So while you want to be supportive of your child, really um, being able to provide a supportive environment without robbing them of the opportunity to to develop their own wings and learn how to fly. And, And not just learn how to fly, but learn how to develop their own flight paths. That's what I, I always like to think of it so it's it's a careful it's a careful dance um, particularly for parents, but it's one that is necessary if if students are to develop the skills that they will need not only to just to excel in college but also beyond college mm-hmm.
1: I, I would just echo that i I really agree with with dr. George's sentiments on helping, you know, to understand the the universe of choices, resources, all the wonderful things that your child, the student has, but hopefully empowering the student because at the end of the day, that's the person who's got to complete the work, complete the task. And so I think that's really important. You know, I would also say something else that I think comes into play sometimes with students who are struggling is that I think parents, they of course want, what's best for their children in terms of career and in terms of life. But I I have a spouse who is a counselor, academic um, advisor, and I think sometimes something that has to be navigated, and this is something I hear from other people as well, is that I think as a parent, you also have to realize that, going back to what Dr. George was saying, that, that it really is about letting the student, as an individual, find their own path. And so sometimes that may be a better match academically. Um, I do think sometimes students will pursue majors or certain areas because they really think that's what their family wants them to do. And, And certainly I'm not in any way suggesting people disregard, disrespect, don't honor their families and their parents, but this needs to be their academic journey and it needs to be something that's appropriate for what they need to be doing. And sometimes people may be doing things that it's not because they're not smart it's not because they're not talented and creative, uh, but it may not be the best best match for what that person really needs to be doing. And so I know that there are all kinds of concerns. We want people to get jobs that are good and to be able to have fulfilling lives and careers, but it has to be something that matches with the interest and the, and the talents and the things that that person wants to be doing. So I guess I would say also providing that room, I mean, that's part of, I think, being a parent is you've got to give that space for that empowerment and that agency and decision-making. And that includes what you need to be majoring in sometimes.
0: yeah,
3: Definitely. You know, Neil, that makes me think back to some of my advising days, the top three um, majors and careers that folks were pursuing uh, was pre-med. So they wanted to be a doctor, Mm -hmm. um, engineering or law so that they can become an attorney. And student after student after student, medicine, engineering, law. And when I asked them why they were pursuing these majors, no one had a real response. I didn't hear passion. I didn't hear, oh, I've been wanting to do this since I was a child. And here are the things that I've been doing to prepare for this, this time in my life where I can pursue this. Um, it was always, family, parents, pushing them. And I understand that, I truly do. But I also wanted to encourage each student when I have the opportunity to, to say, you know, college is an opportunity to explore what you are passionate about, to explore what brings you happiness and joy, to explore your strengths, and also into, to improve upon areas where um, there's room for improvement. But the key thing is to explore. And so, from a parental perspective, encouraging exploration, I think um, would be a good thing just just giving your child the 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 space, time, and opportunity to do some creative and focused exploration of their um, of their careers and, and what it is that they want to do post college
0: right
2: yeah yeah and Talking about passion, I would say for all of us, higher education is one of our passions. I mean, if not, y'all wouldn't be in the Department of Higher Education. Rebecca and I would not be doing things that we're doing in higher education. But in looking at what's happened over the past few months with COVID and change and students who may not have been happy with their in-class and now they got moved to everything online. What are some other changes that y'all have seen happening within the realm of higher education that's been brought on by COVID-19? A a loaded question, maybe.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, one of the things that, um, is no surprise is just, uh, A focus on uh, deep learning and and finding ways to innovate um, and energize the learning environment, be it virtual,
0: Mm
3: -hmm. uh, hybrid, remote, or uh, residential or Mm -hmm. face-to-face. And so I see, you can just look at the Chronicle of Higher Education daily and see articles devoted to to teaching and learning. But I think folks across all institutional types, sizes and settings are really trying to think um, intentionally about how to innovate teaching and learning um, in the midst of COVID, but also to be anticipatory of what college teaching and learning needs to be um, post COVID. Right.
1: To maybe, you know, to start out by flipping the question a little bit, I I think in some ways it's been affirming for what we do in higher education. Mm -hmm. We know that our students, and we hear from our students, they miss this experience to be around us and to be around their student peers, and that there's something that they want. I mean, you hear from students, we want to be back in the fall. This is, so I, I think there's some fear, even in the midst of all this really troubling events that we've had going on, there's also an affirmation of what we do. I think it's also highlighted some of the challenges that we have with higher education. So for instance, we've talked in this conversation about students who may uh, face food insecurity or other kinds of economic insecurities. So this really puts into a highlight that if those students can't have access to campus and the resources we give them, then that can be very troubling. And that can even relate to things like, again, food security, Uh, degrees of medical care. And and these aren't just higher education. I think these are deeper societal issues that we we deal with. I think something that the the pandemic has also put into pretty clear relief is the fact that the financial way that our colleges and universities work were so tuition dependent. The states in the past several decades, but it really accelerated with the great recession um, that happened. Uh, that preceded the Barack Obama administration or George Bush too, that really accelerated the disinvestment of state governments in higher education, mm-hmm. and so we have a system that that functions on a model where the finance is related to the tuition and the fees and the housing and the contracts that 's really how institutions now operate, and especially our public institutions operate. And so I think that we're seeing that the decision making uh, in addition to being these very real concerns about health and safety, we're also having, we're, we're realizing that these economic realities we've created, maybe they have some issues that we really need to consider, and, and maybe they're not the best economic realities. If this idea of higher education is a public good, and what does that mean to be a public institution, a public college, or university, and really being able to support those institutions in good times but also times uh, when they struggle and so I I think that this has brought out some of those challenges Um, so for instance as we see institutions laying people off uh, furloughing uh, people and and these are also in our institutions and I, I talked earlier about the challenges to our institutions on the faculty side for instance and that's one of the areas I look at there's kind of still this remaining myth that most of the people teaching in higher education are in these tenure track positions and we've got these really great cushy jobs. The truth is most people who teach in higher education today and teach most of the classes, uh, they're part-time faculty. Mm -hmm. They're contingent faculty is sometimes the term is used. And we have people who work in campus positions across the country in things like food service, custodial services, other places that the pandemic has reminded me, are we really treating these people these employees in ways that align with our institutional mission and creeds. And so again, I think the, our funding structure, but also a lot of times in higher education, we love lofty rhetoric. Mm-hmm. We talk about our mission and creeds, but if you want to know what an institution stands for, how are we treating those employees, for instance, on our campus who are most vulnerable, who are working in food services, who are working right. in our, our, our service positions. And so That, to me, shows challenges ahead for higher education and the fact that we need to do a better job of living up to those missions and creeds. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. And speaking of looking ahead, what what do you think higher education can look like in the next 10, 15 years? I know it's just, you know, COVID has brought up a lot of stuff and it's kind of an uncertain time. We don't know what could happen with this COVID-19 situation, but if you were to take a guess as to how, higher education will evolve in the next decade, what, what would you predict? Hmm.
3: I think we'll be less reliant on uh, face-to-face engagement. I don't think it will go away completely, but I think that we will embrace more fully opportunities that exist um, online and remotely. And um, that's just something that I see across all colleges and universities. I don't see how we can't because that—that's literally the wave of the future. It's not even the future. It's it's here. Right. You know. Um, I think the funding models. It's hard to say because we we do have a performance-based funding model that that permeates most of public higher education, where we focus on graduation rates. Um, but I I see some adjustments there and I'm still trying to figure out um, where we're gonna move toward because we used to be focused on the number of folks we enrolled Mm -hmm. without any meaningful attention to making sure that they are retained and graduated. I don't think that our emphasis on graduation will change but I do think that a greater emphasis on learning uh, will emerge. Now how we assess that is anyone's guess right now, but something that i'm keeping a close eye on how do we ensure that deep learning is taking place where whether it's at the undergraduate graduate or professional level um, it's a discussion at least in my career that first emerged during 08 when folks were really questioning the value of their educations and Mm -hmm. you know neil Neil is our resident uh, law of higher ed expert, but I can remember that discussion coming out of law schools and from law graduates, folks wondering, you know, why did I spend so much money? I got into so much debt and now I can't find jobs. And some folks, I I do remember even lawsuits against um, law schools uh, around, stemming from this conversation. And it it brought forth a A discussion that is still ongoing in higher education is, and that discussion centers around the value, Mm -hmm. what students are paying for. I'm careful not to use the word consumer because I don't like it in higher education, but I recognize that, that higher education is also an enterprise. And as an enterprise, you have to also focus on the bottom line, which is the dollar. But I think moving forward to make sure that the dollars are still flowing, we are going to have to be more attentive to issues of deep learning. So I think 10 to 15 years from now, the colleges and universities that survive will be the ones that that focused on that. Also, I think the colleges and universities that push agendas of diversity, equity and inclusion I think are going to be uh, shaping the higher education landscape, not just 15 years from now, but 30, 40, even 50 years from now.
1: To, to, to add on to, to some of those really excellent points and in, in agreement, you know, I'll first start with, I think over the next 10 to 15 years, something that could be uh, really promising for higher education is that we have a lot of institutions as our society already is very diverse, That really answers the call to serve all students. And so, for instance, if you're a public flagship being the public flagship for the entire state and not really a portion of the state. And so I think on on the optimistic side, we could see institutions following that model and also de-emphasizing some of the elitism in higher education. So, for instance, if we want to serve black students better. Well, we should look at historically black colleges, universities. They've already had great success. They're great institutions, Hispanic-serving institutions. And so maybe a de-emphasis on some of the, the traditional markers of elitism and maybe more concerns on markers of equality, inclusivity. And those aren't always the traditional institutions that get talked about in the New York Times. It's not always the Ivy League institutions. So I think there's some promise there as our society changes and hopefully makes some really important and dramatic changes. Institutions can also change for the positive. I think with what Dr. George was talking about, new ways of learning and communication such as online, right now institutions often think in competitive terms, but what if we think in collaborative terms, which there is a lot of that going on, but we could do that even more across institutional types two-year institutions, four-year institutions in ways that, serve our, that aren't really focused on serving the institution. They're focused on serving our students. Yeah. They're not focused on notions of as much competition or even the consumer or capitalistic kind of mode of thinking, but it's focused on serving society. So I think those, those kinds of changes could be very welcoming. Mm-hmm. I think on a little more pessimistic side, which um, I, I think back to Roger Geiger is a very well-known historian of higher education. And Geiger talked about one of the strengths of the American higher education system was we created, you know, a select number of kind of really high quality world-class institutions. But then we created a lot of really good institutions mm-hmm. in and that that's a strength so that, so that you can have access to a lot of really good institutions. I think a lot of the financial troubles for higher education on an economic scale relate to the fact or we're increasingly going to have have and have not institutions where we have certain institutions with the deeper pockets and that can hold to traditional models such as Dr. George was talking about to emphasize deeper learning and this kind of student experience and it's not just about careerism but that those then get where only access is available to a smaller and smaller slice of society. And then you have this other group of colleges and universities that really are having to offer an experience that is not nearly anything like that. And so I think that we're at a tipping point in American higher education. Do we still have this commitment to where we have a lot of really, to pretty good institutions that a lot of people can have access to? Are we gonna really create this model where you've got a pretty small slice of good to selective to world-class institutions and a lot of us really don't have access to that, that kind of institution uh, because of the financial difficulties that are increasingly a part of the decision-making in higher education. And I hope, I hope that's not the case, but I do think that's the danger if we look at how we're funding a lot of institutions that serve an, an increasingly diverse society. And those institutions deserve to be funded. And they, we have to get away from some of our traditional markers of what makes status and elitism. Mm-hmm. I'll also
3: add that you know we've already begun to see um, agreements between undergraduate degree granting programs and professional programs of study. I'm thinking of medical schools, uh, pharmacy schools, um, nursing doctoral programs, even law schools where undergraduates can start their graduate or professional schooling earlier. Right, maybe during junior year, some instances they start commingling those um, undergraduate and graduate or professional level courses from the very onset of matriculating as a a college freshman. I think we'll see more of that. I think we'll see um, more intentionality behind those types of program designs because the whole goal is to uh, lower expenses, right? And also time to completion, right, for for a student to truly enter the market uh, workforce without any more schooling. And I think that it's not a bad thing as long as we're still carefully focused on issues of access and equity as we um, expand those program offerings.
2: So for people who may possibly want to go into higher education, what advice do you have for them? What are some things they need to look for to make sure that it's the right, either the right program for them, the right institution for them, the right job? What are some things that y'all have learned from your experiences that when somebody says, okay, well, I want to do this, or I don't know if I want to do this, what do you tell them?
3: Neil, mm-hmm. yeah, I may let you go first on that one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, we've talked some earlier about exploration, and I right. I think that's that's a part of what we're talking about. I You know, I think when I talk with a lot of students, something that re- really fuels them is, you know, Jeremy and Rebecca, they had the opportunity to work with somebody like you mm-hmm. in a college or university setting, and they saw that even though you worked really hard and you had a lot of challenges, you were very fulfilled on an intrinsic level. Right. I mean, we'll put this out at first for most people, you don't go in hire. So I will say if somebody's like, I really want to make a lot of money and be guaranteed of that, not necessarily the <laughs> career route, but for people who are interested in, in really helping others um, that they, they want to feel that despite the hard work that, that it can be very satisfying. I still think higher education working in colleges and universities can be, can be a good route. So one thing I would say is, as you look around and you see people at institutions, including at University of Mississippi or other places, and you're like, oh, they, they get to do something that's pretty neat. I wonder how they got there. I think talking to them and asking about them about that. And I will say that, you know, I would put in a plug, I think we have a very good program, but there are a lot of really good programs out there. And at this institution, we have people who have gone to a variety of places.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I think is uh, understanding what those are, talking with people that you see on campus who have jobs that you're interested in. And then we've talked about reaching out to faculty while you're in school. One other thing you can do is most of those programs have websites and people that you can reach out and you can, you can learn more about them. Some of the major student affairs organizations like NASPA or ACPA, they have ways for undergraduate students, for instance, to get involved. So taking advantage of those opportunities, I think can be, can be really valuable. And then what I would say is, as you're looking for programs, you know, the more that a person can be flexible, for instance, geographically, that may be a great time. You may think you wanna really stay at the institution where you went undergraduate and that can be okay, but that may be a good time in life to move across the country and see if you can get into a program and that has an assistantship that can give you some really great experiences. Um, and then what I would say is it's hard to know exactly what you want to do. Most people, you know, I started out when I was really young, I was going to be a superhero. Um, (laughs) I never quite developed the ability to stick to walls or fly. So I had to make some changes. Um, then I was going to be a professional basketball player. Um, my only challenges is there. I'm, 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 about 5'9". Um, I don't have a, the best jump shot and I'm not the fastest out there. and I'm not the best dribbler. But other than that, I was pretty good. Um, and, and as I said, I, I thought I was going to be in a K-12 environment. And so mm-hmm. kind of like the Beatles would say, life is what happens while you're making other plans. So what you start out doing may not be what you end up doing. But starting out in higher ed can be a very fulfilling place. And so, again, talking with those people around you who are in positions that you think are interesting, then reaching out to those different kinds of programs um, and maybe taking a chance and and maybe go somewhere a little different than you are now to push you out of your comfort zone and be ready to grow some and to learn. Mm
3: -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think the only thing that I would add to that is... um, Research is something that's been a part of my life since my pre-college mm-hmm. years, actually. Um, yeah, I, I think I've been doing research since I was 14. That's when I published my first um, journal article. That's crazy to think about, actually. Um, but I think undergraduate research presents unique opportunities. To explore um, topical issues that that are intriguing to you, and that's something that I did as an undergraduate, and it led me more toward policy and equity. Mm-hmm. That's all I had. I didn't I didn't really have a clue beyond that. I didn't know that it was going to be a doctorate in educational leadership and policy analysis. Um, actually, it led me to sociology first, and um, and it actually was a unique degree that I still draw on, even today. Mm-hmm. And from there, um, sociology of education, higher education specifically, and then to higher education. So it was a gradual journey, but it started with, um, apart from my experiences in diversity programming and res life, combining that experience with uh, undergraduate research opportunities. and. Um, It sounds intimidating at first, but what's so unique about it, oftentimes those research uh, opportunities are paid experiences. So it's an opportunity to to get a little more cash, Um, but also it's a way to develop and cultivate uh, a relationship with a faculty member who's intrigued uh, about similar issues as, as you are. And uh, that faculty member, hint, hint, can also help you get into a nice graduate program. Sorry. (laughs) Um, And that's actually what happened to me. I was in my sociology classical theory. This is a persistent colleague who's trying to get in touch with me. Um, (laughs) I was in my classical sociological theory class. And uh, again, only black girl. And was really just going through a lot of issues, and inside and outside of the classroom. But I noticed that this professor—never forget him—he was a Harvard grad, and uh, his name was Mustafa Emmerbayer, and he was brilliant. But I didn't notice his brilliance. What I noticed is that he was wearing Sean John. Which is, you know, P Diddy, Puff Daddy. I don't. I think he's called Love now. Um, and he wore that every day to class. And he also wore a gold chain, like a gold chain and a diamond earring. But he, his personality did not match all of that, you know, flavor that he was giving off in his attire. But it drew me into office hours. And long story short, I think I did like a focused research project with him, which allowed us to get to know each other. It turns out he was a lover of rib shacks in the South. So we bonded over meat oh. <laughs> in the South and his love of Sean John, urban wear. And he wrote my letter, one of my letter of recommendations to get into my master's program overseas. And um Never thought that it would have, you know, originated from office hours. like how I linked that back in? Go to office hours.
0: <laughs>
3: but also just doing, uh, pursuing an undergraduate research opportunity. Um, you just never know. There's so many opportunities. But I, I, I am a huge advocate of undergraduate research. Now at the University of Mississippi, we do have some undergraduate research opportunities. Some are more informal um, than than others, but if you approach any faculty member that you think you might have a connection with and just ask them, hey, are you working on any research projects or would you be open to working with me on something? I am sure folks will be receptive.
0: Right.
3: It just takes an one ask. That's
0: it. Well, we have a lightning round, couple of questions for y'all, because we're curious to know a little bit more about you as individuals and as college students yourself. So tell us about Your freshman year of college, what did Dr. Hutchins and Dr. George's life look like your freshman
1: year? (laughs) Mm. Well, I'm going to start this one because in many ways, I did not do college the way that one would think of it um, in a really thoughtful fashion. I was very fortunate that I had a parent who worked at an institution to where I could go and tuition was covered. And I just kind of fell into that. So I think I graduated high school on a Friday and started taking college classes the next week or two. And so I didn't think about it enough. Um, And so I I kind of carried over from how I was um, as a high school student, uh, but didn't do some of those kinds of things that that Dr. George, that Phyllis is talking about, to go in and ask those questions, do those office hours. Uh, I had it too much on autopilot. And, and so uh, that's one of the reasons I think I care so much about higher ed. I was very fortunate in many ways that the ability that I had to do, which was very special, um, but at the time certainly didn't recognize all the, the, the great things that I had around me that I wish I would have done a better job of taking advantage of. I really wasn't a good student until I got to law school. Maybe I shouldn't say that as somebody who's a professor, but that's why I also, when I meet with students, I'm like, you can turn this around. Things can really improve. I was not, it was law school before I think I figured out how to be a student.
3: I think for me, college was an adjustment, but not, not for academic reasons. It was more so, um, um, geographic and cultural reasons um and I, I mean i moved from mississippi to the midwest and mm-hmm. i mean the the weather was an adjustment i remember almost getting frostbite because i was standing right. waiting on the bus and some kids i mean just really not smart right um i remember halloween was a big thing there and and Actually, I was standing waiting on a bus and some kids and it was It was the start of the campus Halloween um, um, activities and Needless to say, that was an education you know um so I think for me, adjusting culturally to a place that was a little more liberal um, that was just freer in many ways to to explore things so I just was really amazed uh, uh, by the types of people that I met and the types of experiences that I was allowed to have. For instance, after one of my first freshman seminars, probably shouldn't say this, but (laughs) I remember the professor saying, okay, let's walk down to the union. And we had several unions Mm -hmm. um, and each sold alcohol. And so, the professor says, you know, the first rounds on me, well, you know, I didn't drink. So it's like round what? <laughs> and I get there and it's beer. And I knew then, okay, this is a completely different scene. I'd come from parochial school in uh, Madison, Mississippi. And so went from Madison, Mississippi to Madison, Wisconsin. It was very different. Yeah. So making adjustments that way and just being open to, um, Open to the experience. It was it was a very good experience for me. Um, You know, the world was my world was no longer just black and white, rich or poor, um, you know, Mississippi or not Mississippi. Um, It was very diverse. I can remember once, well, in the spring semester because Wisconsin was a flagship institution and also a land grant institution, they had a a huge outreach arm. And so kids from the rural parts of Wisconsin would come and they would stay on the agricultural side of campus and take courses that were were designed to help them uh, run their families' farms. And I cannot tell you, they knew how to party, but it also was just a different, it was a different type of student, you know, they were they were working before any of us were working. And I remember learning a lot. There were other students that came uh, once in the fall, I wanna say from France. Um, and I don't know what type of program it was that we had these students, but I could always tell they, they had a dorm reserved for them and we were able to practice our French and they were able to practice their English, Just just, an enormous array of opportunities that had I not been open as a freshman, I would have missed out on. Right. So Phyllis as a freshman, I just was, I won't say I was wide open because that has different connotations, but I was just really, you know, open to experiencing as much as I could. Right. You know? Cause it was just, I was just thankful for the opportunity to be honest.
2: Yeah. Um, so another question Who is someone that you would consider a mentor during your career? Mm
3: -hmm. I I mean, my mentor, uh, she was a phenomenal woman. She recently transitioned, but she just was awesome. Awesome, Mm -hmm. awesome, awesome. She worked well into her 80s. That's how awesome she was. Mm -hmm. Awesome and fierce. Um, Her name was Dr. Murcil Lee, and she was an associate vice chancellor for academic affairs at Wisconsin and i think i had been underneath her tutelage since i was 17. Mm -hmm. you know and so she just she was dm students at Spelman during the height of the civil rights movement she was close friends and confidants with um the kings
0: Mm -hmm.
3: so much so that she called dr king michael because that was his name before uh martin was changed to martin um and just really a tremendous spirit that, that uh, knew how to encourage students while promoting agency. And um, those were two uh, gifts that she gave to every student that came into her, class, into her office, encouragement and agency. And so I try to model that even to this day.
1: Yeah. I've been fortunate to have you know, several people, but in, in thinking of, of one for today, I'd have to mention John Thielen, a really well-known historian of higher education at the University of Kentucky. I was able to work with John when I was an assistant professor, and he was always gracious with his time. He was always welcoming. He was, again, a very senior scholar, so he could have easily not had time for me. But John always had time for me. He had time for students. And so with him, I learned the balance of somebody who was a really, really good scholar, but also made himself accessible to students. Mm -hmm. And so I I think of that model and and the way that he could write. I was really glad um, this past year we were fortunate enough to have him on campus to talk about his book, Going to College in the 60s. So I would talk about Professor Thielen. Well, we
0: definitely appreciate you guys sharing your wisdom and tips and advice and and histories with us. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience before we wrap things up? Hmm.
3: You know, I'll just say that I know right now is a crazy time. It is for all of us, but if you are, um, if you are interested in pursuing your passion, now is the perfect time to pursue it because now more than ever before, we need you to recognizing that um, that passion may lead to a cure for cancer. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: It may um, lead to uh, the end of racism and all other forms of systemic oppression. It may lead to um, a new app that allows us to be more interconnected as we uh, practice social distancing from one another. In essence, our future lies with you. And so I hope that you recognize that and see college as an opportunity to develop your skills, uh, to to uh, pursue new and more complex funds of knowledge that will enhance you and allow you to be um, a great contributor to society. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really what this is all about. And um, only you know what your special gift is. Only you know what your passions are. But as you pursue those, and as you explore those, know that you have a wealth of resources right at your fingertips. All of us here uh, in this chit chat session are here to help, but there are a whole host of our colleagues and friends at the university that also stand ready to help you. So just know that.
1: You know, I, I think of something that I would like to add, um, Jeremy and Rebecca is that something on this campus that I'm always amazed, those individuals who are working in student affairs, student services positions, I think, I think the two of you are just so uh, symbolic and um, illustrative of, of, of the power of these individuals. And so I think a session like this, this, is I'm sure it's not your formal job title, but you do it because you care. You want to help students, you want to help their families, you want to continue a discussion about how we make college better and serve people better. And so for me, it's, it's what I, you know, inspired by the kind of example you set and others that I know in your unit and division here and at other institutions doing similar work. And I'm always inspired by it um, and always kind of a little tired after I realize how the pace that you keep. So uh, thank you for all that you do and doing, doing something like this chit chat.
0: Well, thank you. We, that's very nice of you to say, and we feel very inspired by you guys and all the work that you do because your mentorship, your teaching, your research impacts all of the students and all of the people who pursue a career um, in this field. So thank you for all that you do, and thank you for joining us today. Fabulous uh, talk with y'all. Um, for those who are viewing, feel free to check us out on social media, and we will see you next week. Thanks again. Take care. Thank y'all.